You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together now. And Lord, I ask that you would bless us as we work and as we study together. Help us in all that we do to grow to be more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for whose name's sake we ask it. Amen. Right, well, we're going through this study of the first epistle of, to Timothy, Paul's letter to Timothy, and we've reached chapter 4 uh, today, and uh, this is really about leadership in the church, and more particularly, uh, or training for godliness, and more particularly what Paul recommends to Timothy himself. This is personal advice given to Timothy. And he starts with principles, and then works from there to practice. Uh, and this is, I think, a very important thing to re- remember, because uh, the practice, of course, has to be based on the principles. And uh, it's important to understand this, because so often, especially in, in something like ministry, you know, people tend to uh, get in a rut, and you, you, there are certain things you do, uh, because you've always done them. Um, and it's not always very portable. You know, you can't always just, just take that from one place to another. You have to kind of look at the situation and then adjust your practice to fit you know, the needs of the place. So it's good to see that Paul starts with this and starts, it says, well, this, these are the principles and you must behave accordingly. So what does he say? Well, first of all, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Well, um, the Spirit expressly says. Uh, where does the Spirit expressly say this? Well, we don't know. Um, it's, he's not, Paul is not quoting anything uh, in the Bible. Well, of course, his Bible would be the Old Testament. Uh, and uh, inevitably, because uh, the, the, the situation, uh, the, the, what, he, what the Spirit says, uh, that in later times some will depart from the faith, uh, doesn't really apply to the Old Testament. I mean, you can't uh, see it there. So it's not stated there. This must be something that the Holy Spirit has told to Paul himself, that he's communicating this. And of course, this is a sign of his apostleship. This is uh, that he receives word, a word from God like this, and this is what he has been told, that in later times, and of course the use of, of this expression, uh, later times, uh, this refers to the time of the church because it was the belief uh, of the apostles that uh, when Jesus Christ came, uh, that was uh, not exactly the end of time, but the, the last days are upon us, that there will be no further revelation, that this is the, the thing. And it's important to understand this because, uh, of course, um, when you get something like the Church of Latter-day Saints, um, there are no Latter-day Saints. Uh, I mean, <laughs> we're the Latter-day Saints. Um, uh, that is the way in which the Apostle Paul would have understood this. And he said, what does he say? Some will depart from the faith 
by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now, we don't like to emphasize this kind of thing uh, today. We don't talk about this very much. But it is important to uh, remember uh, that our ministry, our uh, witness in the church, this is a spiritual thing, and we are fighting a spiritual battle. Uh, and it's particularly important nowadays because uh, there's a tendency in the world to divide things between what is material and what is spiritual. Uh, and the idea is that we live in a material world, uh, you know, the, the, uh, materialism is kind of one way or another is, is the uh, framework in which we operate, uh, and that anything beyond that, anything that's metaphysical, beyond the physical, is kind of written out or regarded as purely optional. Uh, you know, some people get into that and other people don't. Uh, but those who do are regarded as spiritual regardless of what they're actually doing. Uh, so, you know, whether you do yoga or whether you, uh, you know, pray to the Buddha or, or whatever, uh, you know, the minute you get away from purely material concerns, um, you're regarded as a spiritual person and being spiritual is kind of undefined, uh, you know, as long as you're sort of in that realm. Um, well, some people think that's a good thing or, or uh, you know, let's, let's say, well, forget those who don't take it seriously. Uh, let's say those who do say it doesn't really matter uh, how you're spiritual or what kind of spirituality you have uh, as long as you have that dimension in your life. Now, Paul, of course, would completely disagree with that uh, because he would say uh, that uh, the spirit world, uh, the world of the spirit, is uh, a world of warfare between good and evil. In fact, good and evil are spiritual things. Uh, and this goes right back to, uh, to Genesis. Um, that in the, uh, you know, you look at the Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Um, how did evil come into the world? Uh, it didn't come into the world because Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree. That, 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 that wasn't what caused evil in itself, as if the tree was something wrong with the tree. Uh, no, uh, it uh, was because they yielded to the temptation of Satan, Satan who is a spiritual power, a spiritual force, uh, who appears to them and speaks to them and tempts them away from their allegiance to God. So uh, the battle between good and evil is, is a spiritual battle, and it's important to remember this because, and again, this is where we get back to our modern world, um, it can't be resolved by material means. You see, and this is the, this is the, the problem today, or at least the challenge that we face today. Um, people who think uh, that throw money at it, uh, you know, have a, have a program, uh, vote for the right politicians or whatever, and you can solve the problem of evil you know, one way or another. If, if, you, if you do the right thing, pass the right laws, uh, you know, and put enough money in the, uh, towards it, um, you'll get rid of this problem. Well, of course, you, you can do some things. You can have, you can improve, you know, material conditions, uh, but material means only go so far. 
Uh, I mean, you, you know, you can make life better in, in a material way, but this doesn't, in fact, solve the problem of good and evil. It simply transfers it to another realm so that, you know, people, say, who are very poor, uh, have nothing, um, you know, might steal a loaf of bread in order to live, and that's stealing. Uh, so that's what they do. Um, and people who have millions of dollars and live in a penthouse apartment in New York, um, they steal in a different way. Uh, you know, and uh, they can steal billions um, from companies and so on by, by, by sharp practices. So that although they, materially they might be well enough off, uh, it, spiritually they're in the same boat. I mean, there's still that, that evil inside. And we need to understand this. We need to understand that the, the temptation that we face is that we will be misled it spiritually into doing or saying or thinking things uh, that will take us away from the truth. And this is what Paul goes on to say. He says, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So this is where we get down to the actual issue at stake. First of all, the insincerity of liars. Um, that's probably an oxymoron or something. I mean, you know, like, what's a sincere liar? Uh, politician, I suppose. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, they're perfectly sincere, uh, <laughs> but they're just not telling you the truth. Um, and. Uh, so insincerity of liars, I mean, that, that seems to go with the territory, you might say, um, whose consciences are seared. Now, here's an interesting uh, expression, because, of course, what's happened that the translation is literal. It's taken from the Greek. You see, the conscience, that's the way they spoke. We probably wouldn't say that in that way. Um, I don't, maybe you would, but I, I think probably if it were up to us, you know, just to say this, we would say whose consciences are dulled or, uh, you know, we would use some, some, something like this. I mean, the meaning is clear, of course, that it, they, they, they're not, they haven't got a conscience um, or their consciences have, you know, have, have, have managed to um, get rounded out at the edges and so on so that they don't actually um, uh, speak to people. And this is, this is a problem that we have. Um, uh, you know that, uh, and I think it's something that you find is increasingly difficult. Um, you know, as you as you get older, because uh, you, you have experience of life and so on, and uh, you realize that there are a lot of difficult situations and hard cases and everything else, and you find yourself having to sort of skate around certain things. You know, because it just doesn't work otherwise. I mean, for years when I was in. Um, academic life. Uh, my one mission in life was every time we sat down to write a new regulation of some sort, um, my contribution was always to put the word normally in. <laughs> you know. Um, and the reason is, of course, because the, the first person who turns up under the new regulation is some weird exception that nobody's ever thought of. Uh, I mean, this is true. I mean, this happened uh, uh, here at Beeson when I first came. They, they put down something that 
students who come must reach a certain level in the GPA or something, you know, before they can en enroll or something like that. And I mean, it all sounded very good. Um, but the first person who applied actually came from South Africa, where, of course, they don't have GPA. I mean, it's a different system. And the question was, well, could he be admitted, you know, because he had, didn't have the qualification? And I so, said, well, he probably has the equivalent, uh, you know, in South Africa uh, uh, and so on. But, um, you know, if you, if you take a literalist view, and of course those people do, um, you know, you, you, uh, technically it's not the case. And so this is why you put the word normally in. You know, to convince people that there is a reason for this. Um, but after a while, I would say, you know, your, your conscience tends to get a little bit, um, uh, what do you call that, round, you know, sort of smoothed out <laughs> in a way because you think to yourself, well, maybe this is wrong in, in some way, but it's the only way we're going to get what we want. So we go boom, like this. And we have to watch this, uh, you know, because, um, I mean, yes, sometimes we have to make exceptions to things you know life is is can get complicated but do we get to the point where uh, we don't have a conscience anymore at all um, you know that's uh, that's a really a real danger um, that we need to um, uh, uh, watch because then we land we land up in this position you see you just uh, bend over backwards and a lot of uh, a lot of people certainly ministers in the church clergy um, have a problem with this you know, you tend to bend over backwards to, to accommodate just everything and everybody. And in the end, you don't really know what you believe or what you're doing. So be careful on this one. I, we have to be. So who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. Well, what are we talking about here? This is, this is these, these people are not Jewish. Because Jewish people uh, didn't do this. Um, uh, well, they might have required abstinence from certain foods, but actually this not. Uh, this is uh, paganism, uh, or at least uh, a, a certain form of Greek philosophy um, no normally associated today with Plato. It's a kind of a platonic way of thinking. Uh, forbidding marriage, um, not that Plato exactly forbade marriage, it wouldn't be quite like that, um, but he certainly didn't recommend it. Uh, and uh, the reason, of course, was that, uh, again, the the, uh, this notion of spirituality being something higher and better than purely material uh, uh, life, you see, that uh, you need to get away from the, from the purely material uh, and rise to a higher level. Now, in fairness, uh, you can kind of understand that people who were brought up in a pagan society would have been familiar uh, with uh, worship patterns, pagan temples, um, where uh, there was a lot of sexual perversion, um, you know, fertility cults and things like that. Um, there was a lot of gluttony. Gluttony was a major problem uh, in Roman times among pagans. Uh, and so you can sort of see, uh, you know, that people who sort of wallowed in that kind of thing, um, you know, that you'd want to sort of get away from it and have a, have a, a more intellectual uh, approach. Uh, but how far do you go? I mean, it's the kind of swinging of the pendulum. You know, how far do you want it to swing in the opposite direction? Um, and this was the problem. 
that they faced. Uh, and uh, it's a problem that comes back in different forms at different times. I mean, later on, not in Paul's time, but later on in Christian church, um, there was a move, movement of asceticism towards monasticism. And of course, the monastic movement um, went in this direction. Uh, you know, people uh, would, would go off into the desert, uh, practice not just celibacy, but also fasting. And how long could you fast? You know, you'd, uh, 40 days in the wilderness. They would take it from the Old Testament uh, examples uh, and, and sometimes ruin their health because of this. I mean, it was, a, it was something that happened. And from there, of course, it, it, it seeped into the, into the wider church so that in the Middle Ages, um, it was decreed that the clergy could not marry. They weren't forbidden to eat. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the, the compulsory celibacy of the clergy, which is still, of course, the, the rule in the Roman Catholic Church, and has been the source of endless problems, uh, you know, one way or another over the centuries. The Protestant reformers objected uh, to it, um, you know, for, because uh, it was leading to um, concubinage and so on. I mean, leading to people just just living on the side, you know, having a private life, which was a contradiction uh, to what they were supposed to be doing in public. Today, of course, it's very it's very interesting how these things um, uh, sort of go around and come around. Uh, today, um, we're watching a, we're in a situation where marriage is being deconstructed uh, in public. Uh, you know, you have same-sex so-called marriage. Well, that's not marriage. Um, you know, uh, and uh, I mean, just yesterday, I was reading uh, somewhere. I think it was. I can't remember where, uh, but um, there was a, there's, there's something now with transgenderism that there are parents apparently who are um, who are afraid that their children are going to grow up homosexual, gay. So in order to prevent this, uh, if they see sort of tendencies in small children, they want to change their gender so that they'll have, uh, you know, sort of so-called normal children. I mean, how perverted can you be? Uh, <laughs> you know, sort of going like this. But the thing that I always point out to these people is that what they're really doing, of course, is sterilizing a whole generation. Because you can't do this. I mean, you can't give somebody a womb if they haven't got one. Um, you know, you can do plastic surgery on the outside, but it's not going to change anything on the inside. And uh, and all you can really do, uh, uh, you know, the, the biggest achievement is to sterilize them, in effect. Um, you know, make it impossible for them to have any uh, kind of children at all. So, and I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, you see that this is this is being done now um, to children, you know, young children. Uh, you hear about it and being recommended. And I think to myself, well, what's going to happen in 20 years or something like this when these people grow up uh, and start suing goodness knows who, uh, you know, because when they were five or ten or whatever age they were, um, you know, they went through this kind of process and it, they weren't really responsible adults at the time uh, and they were stuck, they're now stuck for life with this. 
you know. And so it really makes a mockery of sexuality and, of course, a mockery of marriage as a result. So although these people would say, well, we don't forbid marriage, you know, you're quite happy, you can get married as much as you like, they're denying the essence of marriage, um, you know, so that it's just a, something you do on paper. Uh, it's not a reality. Uh, and we face this in this way. Again, require abstinence from foods that God created. You see, the, 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 what you get back to here is the doctrine of creation. Um, that God created, what God created, he created good. You see, that nothing that God created is bad in itself. Now, of course, everything can be abused. Uh, I mean, you know, milk isn't bad in itself. Uh, but I'm told if you drink two billion gallons of it, you may die of cancer. Um, not sure that... Uh, how long that would take, <laughs> you know. I read that somewhere, some, you know, strange um, uh, statistic like this. So, of course, overdoing it is obviously wrong, but that's not the same thing as uh, turning away from it altogether. You see, and it's, again, uh, having the understanding that the thing in itself is good uh, if it's used properly, um, but it's a case of using it properly and using it in, in moderation in the right way, you see. And this, is, of course, is more demanding because it's actually easier not to touch things. You know, sort of say, well, I'm not going to eat chocolate, I'm not going to eat this, or I'm not going to touch that. Just, you know, don't deal with it. Uh, whereas it's harder to say, well, I can have just so much of this and so much of that and, not, you know, not uh, only two, two or three times a week. You know what I mean? Having to think about it and having to moderate your consumption and so on requires effort and therefore thinking. Um, and a lot of people uh, find this, uh, you know, a bit taxing. They don't really want to get involved in this. But we must be uh, careful here because... If we if we don't do this, you see, if we if if we just say all right, well, ban it, stop it, just like that, um, you know, without giving any thought to it, um, we are actually denying uh, the creation, uh, you know, and this can happen in uh, in some rather strange ways. Um, for instance, a couple of years ago, in Britain, it was revealed um, that. Uh, if you're a hospital patient, a hospital bed, um, you will never be given pork. It doesn't exist in hospitals. Why not? Well, because the people who work in the canteens, who work in the kitchens, there's a high percentage of Muslims, you know, mainly Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, people like this, and they won't handle it. So in order to... Um, uh, accommodate them, uh, you know, pork is not served in, in hospital canteens. And th this all came to light because, of course, pork producers were saying, you know, we can't sell our product to, 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 to the hospital because of this. Um, and so you realize, you see, that it caused quite a stir. You know, people said, well, 
what's wrong with this? You see, and it's only because Islam forbids it. Of course, Judaism does as well. Um, you know that this is imposed on the whole uh, society, and uh, you know everybody has to sort of accommodate. Now, of course, we say as Christian, it doesn't matter to me whether I eat pork or not. Um, you know, I don't sort of go to hospital and demand I have a pork for lunch, but. Uh, but the underlying principle here, you see, is that can we live in a society where, um, where something that is in itself good is in effect forbidden because somebody else thinks you shouldn't eat it um, f- for reasons that have nothing to do with health um, you know, or anything like that it's a, because they think it's a, it's a bad thing in itself. Uh, and so where do, you know, we have to think about this. It's much, it comes home much more than you might realize uh, once this kind of thing uh, starts to happen. And then it says that for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected. This is verse 4. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is an interesting statement. It is made holy by the word of God and prayer. What are we talking about here? Generally speaking, the word holy, holiness, um, in the New Testament uh, is not used of things, but only of people and, and of course, of God. Uh, you know, there are holy people, saints, uh, but not holy places or holy things in themselves. And when we come to this, you see, something is made holy by the word of God and prayer, uh, you tend to think to yourself, well, you know, what's Paul saying? Is, is he saying that there are things uh, which you can make holy? You know, you can sort of change them from what they are to something holy, um, you know, by some kind of religious ceremony that you, you have over them. And I think that's not really what he's saying here. First of all, he's saying that everything created is good. So whatever making holy means, it doesn't mean turning from being evil to being uh, or bad to being something good. It's a different thing altogether. Holiness is set apart. It's something which is set apart for a specific purpose. And I think, first of all, of course, on the question of marriage, matrimony, we talk about holy matrimony. But when you stop to think about it, matrimony is not a thing, uh, you know, in itself. It is a relationship, and it is the relationship which is sanctified, which is made holy. And, of course, relationships are only possible between people. Um, And so, really, what you're talking about here is an attitude of heart and mind of the people who are involved um, who make their relationship holy because they are holy. Uh, you, you know, it's a consequence of this. So I think it really comes back to the people in the end. Uh, and of course, uh, the food that we consume also um, has an effect on us. You see, it's, it's to do with us. It's not that you sort of make say, a loaf of bread holy and then put it in a box and start worshipping it um, because it's holy. Uh, you know, not something like that. Um, it, is, uh, it is consecrated for use uh, and for use by people. Um, you know, and, and that is what uh, we need to bear in mind here. 
Now he says, if you put these things before the brothers, this is verse 6, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. First of all, if you put these things before the brothers, um, bad translation, another example of where you know English sometimes doesn't, um, doesn't have the words. Uh, used here. Um, they translate brothers. Uh, it really, of course, uh, isn't confined to males uh, because uh, this word, uh, if we said you put these things before the brethren, I don't know if you want to say that, but it's really between the brothers and the sisters and it's hard to know what to do because if you add sisters, you could, people would say, well, that's not in the text. Um, but the word brother in English uh, is too restrictive. Uh, you see what I mean? So we just don't have a word for this. You know, si you could say sibling, but sibling doesn't work in this context because they're not siblings. Um, you know, you and I are not siblings, although we may be brothers and sisters in Christ. To say sibling would somehow not be the right word. You know, what I, you know what I mean? Translation can be very difficult in this way, but that's what it is. So you put these things before the members of the church, before those who are believers in the church. You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. In other words, this is this is what your purpose is, uh, really. You see, not uh, you will be a successful pastor or everybody will look up to you, but you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. This is who you are serving. This is your purpose. This is why you're doing this. Um, not to draw attention to yourself, not even uh, to... Um, be a good guide to the people you're, you're, you're teaching. I mean, that's important, of course, too, but that's not the focus. The focus is serving Christ, uh, who has sent you, uh, you know, mandated that this is what you're supposed to do. And so that's the focus that you have to have. And then it says, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So being trained in the words of the faith. In other words, you have learned what you believe and the doctrine, in other words, the meaning, the content of this, um, this is a this is difficult uh, because uh, it's the it's the relationship between form and substance. You can, of course, keep the same substance, the same basic meaning, changing the words. And we do this when we translate from one language to another. That's, that, that's obvious, you're doing this. But um, if, you, if you forget that for a minute, if you're just talking about within your own language, if we start playing around, you see, with words, um, you get problems. You get this, for example, there are people who say, uh, you know, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They don't like this, partly because it's too masculine sounding or because it's too sort of personal sounding or whatever. Uh, so they find some other way of saying it. Uh, you know, uh, they say, I believe in the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Sanctifier or something like that trying to get away from this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit language. All right, the intention may be understandable. I'm not saying it's good particularly, but it may be understandable. But you end up with problems because, of course, you can't divide like this. Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier, these are functions. 
uh, not identities. You know, it's not that the Father is the creator, the Son is the redeemer, the Holy Spirit is the sanctifier, and the others aren't. Uh, because we know that, that, that all three persons are creator, all three persons are redeemer, all three persons are sanctifier, because they all function in this way. Uh, so, uh, you see, attempting to change the words in order to, you know, accommodate certain prejudices or whatever, in the end doesn't work. You know, uh, one that I always quote and I get into trouble, but never mind. Um, is, well, um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, where the Apostle Paul talks about the unspiritual uh, man, uh, if you want, human being. And the, the, words, he use, the words he uses, uh, in Greek, the Greek words are psychikos anthropos. Well, anthropos, of course, is clear, human being, anthropology, all right? Uh, if you translate man, well, it doesn't mean male. It means, you know, all human beings. And, and so people, people have a problem with this, uh, you see. So they find some other word for it, but it's not that easy to do. Um, but the real problem is not with this word. The real problem is with the word psychikos, because it comes from the soul, the psyche, the psyche, you see. Uh, and so it is the person of, of the man of soul. And, but this becomes a problem because you can't really say the psychic human being. I mean, this is somebody who plays with crystal balls and things like that. That's not what he's talking about. Um, the Latin word for, for soul is anima, but you can't really say animal man, you know, because this is a football player or something like that. I mean, you can't really, you know, use this word. Um, and you certainly can't say soul man because that's like a jazz musician uh, is a soul man. So what do you say? <laughs> you know, we just don't have a word for this, you see. Or we have words, but the words don't fit. Um, uh, you see what I'm saying? So if, if you start playing around with this, um, you find that you get into trouble. You see, in the King James Bible says the natural man does not know the thing, knoweth not the things of the Spirit of God. Well, natural is the wrong word, different word altogether. The English Standard Version, which I have here, uh, realizes that man won't do. So what do they do? They, they change it to the natural person, which is actually even worse. Because, well, first of all, because person is not necessarily a human being. I mean, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are persons, but they're not human. And, uh, of course, uh, what are you going to do with Jesus? You know, the natural person does not know the things of the Spirit of God. Are you saying Jesus was not a natural person? Well, what was he? Was he an unnatural person? Um, you know, you see, you just, you just get your, tie yourself up in knots once you start playing with words like this because you're trying to solve one problem, but you end up creating others. So, uh, you see, what Paul is saying to Timothy here is that you, you, you've been taught to say this, you say it in a certain way, recognize that these words you know, have particular meanings uh, and so on, and that if you start playing around with it, your, li you, you, your intentions may be good, but you may land yourself up in more trouble than you think um, you know, when, you, when you carry on like this. And then the good doctrine, you see, what you have to understand is that the, the, what the meaning behind the words is, because rattling off words 
of course, just for the sake of rattling off words, in itself doesn't mean anything, you know. And and we tend to do this sometimes. I mean, we have words in our worship, like Amen, for instance, uh, you know, which is very common, but nobody really knows what it means. So very few people know what it means, except the end, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which it doesn't mean. It means so be it or that, something like that. But, but you know, you people get so used to this that they forget what, that there is a meaning even, um, you know, behind it. So we have to be very careful with that. Um, anyhow, he, he said, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. We've had this before. You see that, that um, uh, stick to the facts. Uh, rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Bodily exercise, he's for it, he's not against it, which the Platonists were against it. They, did, they didn't believe in bodily exercise because they wanted to get rid of the body. The body was useless. So Paul doesn't say that. Yes, take care of your body, that's important. But it's important for this life, uh, whereas for the pursuit of godliness, the spiritual attitude, the right spiritual attitude towards God, is important for this life and for the next life. It's something. It's, it's something more because we'll leave our bodies behind. Um, you know, we, we we won't take our bodies with us, the, the present body, into the, the next life. Uh, but our godliness, our spiritual relationship with God, will continue. And so it's important to concentrate on that. Then he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. I mentioned this before. This, this is a phrase that keeps coming back. Does it refer to what went before or does it refer to what's coming next? I think in this case, it, it must refer to what is, has already been said. That in other words, practice godliness. Because he goes, what does he go on? He says, For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe. Another translation problem. When you look at this verse, you think, what is he actually saying? Uh, you know, what is this? First of all, who is the saviour of all people? What Paul means is of Gentiles as well as Jews. He's not counting, it's not a head count of every human being. Um, but remember, he's writing against a context of people who uh, you know, are having to face the fact that the message of salvation in Christ goes to non-Jews as well as to Jews. So that's what all people means, you see, not, not just Jews. And then he says, especially of those who believe. And you think, why does he say that? Uh, I mean, is he saying that people who don't believe are also saved? Um, you know, what's the point? Uh, <laughs> you know, why bother um, if that's the case? And here again, it's a translation problem with the word especially. To us, especially uh, suggests that you're setting aside something. You know, it's a kind of creating a, a, a first class or, a, you know, an elite or something like this. This is not what, what it means. The Greek word here uh, is, a word, is a very common Greek word. It's malista. And uh, if I give you a context in which it's used, you, you may understand what, I, what it's all about. If you go into a restaurant and order a meal, and the, the Greek waiter uh, will take your order and so on, and uh, when, when he, uh, it's complete, uh, you know, he will say to you malista, meaning 
something like certainly yes so that's you know it's kind of confirmation um, uh, of what's being said that's the word they use in this context you see for that not we wouldn't translate it in English especially <laughs> I mean I don't know what we'd say certainly or something like that um, but what he's basically uh, saying I, what I would translate here I said who is the savior of, of all people Jews and Gentiles and, and for sure those who believe uh, you know, if you believe you're okay, don't worry about it. Um, you know, don't. Uh, that's the key. It's and that's how I would translate this. Then he says, command and teach these things. Well, that's pretty obvious. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. The minister of the gospel, the person who is set aside for for ministry has to set an example and age doesn't matter you know um, it can be difficult for younger people uh, going in the, you know to get the respect of older people that that's uh, uh, you know that, that, that's not always easy I mean this morning I was coming out of church 7:30 and standing in line and there was a, a, an elderly gentleman I shouldn't say this but he's an elderly gentleman even older than I am before me and and said to Andrew Pearson you know uh, he, he sort of congratulated Andrew on his sermon but the tone of voice was sort of not bad for a young man you know <laughs> and I mean he didn't mean it that way but that's what you know that's the way it comes across and so we have to be careful about this because we can uh, you know find ourselves in some situation like that but this setting an example is very very important and then he says, what do, how do you do this? He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. In other words, reading the Scriptures, finding the facts, you see, getting the basis first, then exhortation, uh, you know, encouraging people to do this, to sort of work out what the truth is, and then to teaching, explaining what it means. Uh, you see, that's the order in which you're doing this. And he says, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So, Timothy has been ordained, you see, not just by Paul, not just chosen by Paul as a special uh, emissary, but ordained by the council of elders. Uh, in other words, the, 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 the leaders of the church have set Timothy aside in this way. And this is a commission and again, I'm, I'm talking to you, of course, it's not, I'm not talking to ministerial students, but I have to say this to people who are training for ministry. Um, this is part of it. You know, uh, when I was ordained, I had to take on board a way of life. It wasn't just getting a, you know, a piece of paper saying I, I can now do this or that, um, but a way of life and, and uh, that is detailed here you see practice these things immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress in other words live according to the the message that you are proclaiming you see and this is very difficult to do I mean nobody does it perfectly of course um, but I had to take on uh, a, a routine of daily prayer daily Bible reading um, you know, regular accountability to to uh, my boss or an assistant in the church, and so on. Um, I mean, it wasn't just a case of walking out with a diploma. 
uh, <laughs> you know what I mean. It's something else. Um, and, and he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Very important. Self-discipline. Um, for me, this is very important. I mean, I can stand up and talk to you all day, um, uh, you know, about this and that. But if I'm not watching myself, if I'm not saying, well, you know, do I really believe this? Do I practice this? You know, how is this affecting me? Then the rest is worthless. Uh, and the, uh, the most dangerous people are the ones who tell you the truth but don't live it. Uh, because they discredit the word that they're, 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 they're proclaiming. You say, well, it's all right for him. He says this, but he doesn't look at the way he behaves. Um, you know, it's completely different. So, uh, you know, pay no attention. Um, and, you know, you can discredit the ministry uh, very quickly in this. And then he says, persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Uh, in other words, um, it's not just your hearers that you're, you know, you're, you're ministering to. You're ministering to yourself, and this is very true. I always say to students, you know, when you preach a sermon, you learn the first person you preach to is yourself. If you're not challenged by your message, no one else is going to be. That's true. I mean, uh, you know, if you don't believe what you're saying, um, it, it it won't communicate, even if it's true. <laughs> you see what I mean? So uh, you've got to be involved. You've got to say this. You've got to know. You've got to be committed to the message that you convey. Uh, and it has to be seen in the way you live um, and, and in the challenges, that, you know, that I'm challenged by this. Uh, and if I'm challenged by this, well, you know, maybe you will be too. You see what I mean? That's, that's where we uh, land up. Well, we've come to the end of our time. Um, so some people have indicated this by, um, you know, voting with their feet. Uh, I hope I hope you'll do a little bit more than that on Tuesday, um, you know. Uh, but let's just uh, say a prayer together, shall we? And we can uh, go our separate ways. Our Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the message that you have given to us in your holy word. And Lord, I ask that you would bless us, that you would keep us this day and in all things that we might uh, honor and glorify your holy and precious name. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.